Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit theologian, and we're looking today at the issue of Pope Francis and women in the church. And this has come to the fore in recent months, so maybe you'd remind listeners uh, what happened, how the issue of what Francis might have said about women in the church uh, came into public domain again. Yeah, like from the start, Francis was very clear about his desire to have women assume more visibility within the Catholic Church. And he specifically said decision-making powers. And then being very astute as he is, he knew that people would say, well, the real decision makers in the church are the clergy. And he wanted to separate that out and say, no, uh, lay people can make decisions too. And he wanted to keep the two separate. But there's always been an undercurrent and going on. Well, why do women, if they're allowed to make decisions, why can't they be priests? And some women don't want to be priests and some women think it's a clericalization of women and so on. But the question is still there. What is it about a woman that disqualifies her from even being a candidate? So... It came to the point where he's addressed it a number of times informally. He did it to a crowd of women religious early on and he was halfway through his address and they asked him that question and he started to explain it in his own understanding. It was almost as if he heard himself and knew he wasn't convincing anyone and he said, we'll leave it there now. This is, this is theology and he asked me back next year but it didn't happen next year. But last November... He had an interview with five editors of the America Jesuit magazine and one of them, Kerry Weber, uh, one of the women, put it to him that a lot of women were very active within church, whether at parish or even in diocese, and they had very high visibility, but they felt pained, and she used the word pained, that they couldn't be priests because they felt they had a call. And he, his answer he started immediately by saying it's a theological problem and then he jumped into uh, if you like the theological basis as he understood it for the fact that women couldn't be and when he said it I recognized it immediately as coming from I'd done my doctoral studies on the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar who started this kind of language that the Pope used and really it's quite restricted to him It hasn't really taken hold in the larger church. So the Pope said there's two theological principles. One is the Petrine, and that's to do with Peter. And it's a particularly male quality. The church is structured in this kind of way. And it has to do with giving leadership and having authority and taking initiatives. And he says the other principle is the Marian principle. It has to do with Our Lady, understood as being receptive being a disciple, loving. And he says, when you think about it, this is to sugar the pill, if you like, because it's going to turn (laughs) out badly, as you can see. He says the second principle, the marriage, is much more important than the first, the Petrine, because love is of the essence, and love is much more important than all this activity and this leadership and this authority. But the church is structured in this kind of way. And then he said... I'm adding in a third principle, and it's not theological, it's administrative. And what he meant by that was that women could assume leadership roles and decision-making outside of orders, the ministry of orders, so that they didn't have to be ordained, but through their baptism they could exercise leadership. 
And so he came back to it a number of times, and he, he always prefaced it with saying, it's a theological issue, it's a theological issue. And I was just reflecting on it afterwards, and like I had great time for Pope Francis, and I think one of the great things is that even in this interview, it was wonderful that he was so open about his understanding. And a lot of people who might be sitting on the fence on this particular issue would say, well, surely the Pope will be able to give us the reasons, and the Pope has never spoken about it publicly or very mm. rarely, and this is a chance now, and we listen to this, and, and he came out with what he came out with, and I think for, for people who weren't, if you like, in the Balthazar school of theology, it really wasn't very persuasive, that kind of distinction he was mm -hmm. making. And even within the theological community, if you like, there's been very strong critiques of this approach. Yeah. I mean, there are some other arguments as well that are not great oh. about why women can't be priests. But that one almost insults everybody because it mm. insults mm. the men who are priests and mm. are we saying they're not really loving or receptive mm. and mm. that's stereotypical and I presume it's not a psychology is it a theology really I mean it's it's yeah it's, is it a sort of a, an analogical principle yeah it's certainly not strictly it's more like an intuition that Balthazar had. He was writing back in the 50s and 60s at a time when second wave feminism was strong. And he was a bit wary about the fact that that particular aspect of feminism seemed to be denying that there was something distinctive about the female as opposed to the male. He wanted to hold on to the fact that they're both equal, but that there is something peculiar to or characteristic of the male and characteristic of the female. And his intuition was to go to this Petrine Marian model. His critics say they praise him for the fact that he embraced equality and he does come back to that several times. Von Balthasar. Well, that von Balthasar. But the way he did it, this Petrine Marian analogy, which it is, it's an analogy, makes it very clear that women actually are subordinate to men. So even though you're saying they're equal, in fact, in reality, not so. And it does make all kinds of difficulties. So he relates it to what's going on in the Blessed Trinity. He says the father is typically male because he's active and he generates the son who is receptive and is feminine. And you're saying to yourself, the son is feminine. <laughs> and so how does that go with the son being coming as a man and yeah, doing all and this? being kind? very active. And then when you think of lay people within the church, you can see where there's a certain sense in which we receive everything from God. So receptivity is very important. And it's great that receptivity now is being honoured and caring and tenderness are being honoured and so on. But you're saying to yourself, does that mean that men in the church aren't also receptive? And if men can be receptive, which obviously they are, why can't women be active? And if the church is saying in its Catholic social teaching that women should have leadership roles in public life, what's the difference between public life and the church? Why is it that the church, unless it's very clear that Jesus himself wanted it that way. So there's a lot of things about this intuition that Balthazar had, which you could say there may be some sense to it. I've written in an, an article that continental European anthropologists and cultural commentators, including uh, women, 
tend to want to hold on to the fact that there is something distinctive about femininity and masculinity. The Anglo-American thing is more stressing the equality. But supposing there is something distinctive, mm. can one phrase that and explain it in a way that doesn't lead to this subordination, yeah. this inequality, in mm. fact, despite his, his desires not to be so. So you'd have to say that within the theological community, this remains something that's rather peripheral. That's something that you might say it's a theological opinion, but very much a minority opinion. So if, if Pope Francis was looking to something that's generally acceptable within the theological community to buttress the church position currently, then that wasn't a good place to look and most theologians would have known that. And I think a lot of other people who just take an interest in things like that would be saying, why do you essentialize things? Why do you stereotype, stereotype people so strictly in ways that the church has moved beyond in terms of the role of women in politics or the workplace or civil society? More and more women are doing new things and the church is saying, great, what's this about the church itself? So does that kind of sense just that this wasn't the big secret, if you like, that was somehow people who have good faith were saying, well, maybe the Pope knows, you know, and, and he can explain it to us. And when Francis tried to explain it, I think a lot of people were still unpersuaded. One of the things that struck me about it was the preemptory nature of it, it appeared to me. You know, he was asked mm. the question, mm. but he had worked something out uh, limited, albeit, and that was that we were supposed to be in a synodal process, mm. and one of the things that clearly had come out of the synodal processes of consultation around mm-hmm. the globe was the issue of women, and women priests would be part of that. And mm. I suppose I, I felt mm. personally that this was undercutting that mm-hmm. whole process because mm-hmm. now the Pope had spoken mm-hmm. and this is what mm-hmm. he believed. So mm-hmm. what's the point in discussing mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Am I wrong there, do you think? You're certainly not the only one who said that. A lot of people felt that when, when he came out with it. I take a different view on it. I think at the heart of the synodal process are two things. One is this word parousia that he talks about, open speech, honest speech. And that's a huge change. If you look at the previous pontificates in particular, discussion of this, never mind taking up a position, was greatly discouraged. So it's wonderful that we can have this out in the open. The second important thing to do with synodality is the role of the sense of faith of the faithful, the sensus fidei is the Latin expression. And Pope Francis made it clear at the start that that's what's involved in a synodal process, that we begin to discern what the people think and what they feel and what their intuition is. And he also made it very clear at various stages that he doesn't have all the answers and people make mistakes and so on. So I see it as, I'm quite sure, and I, I remember thinking this at the start when he launched this whole synodal process, that he may enter waters that are very uncomfortable for him as well. We're all out of our comfort zone here. And I think he's astute enough to know that that might might happen. So not just on this issue, but on other issues to do with sexual teaching. I think for years, the sense of faith of the people has not received current church teaching. 
and the International Theological Commission in their 2014 document, which incidentally was signed off on by Cardinal Gerhard Muller, who's a stern critic of the Pope, but he signed off on this document. He said, when the sense of fate, or they said, when the sense of faith of the faithful clashes with current church teaching, we need to be concerned. Either that clash can be shown by people being absolutely indifferent to church teaching and disobeying it, or actively combating and challenging it. And he says it can be one of three things. It can be that the people themselves are lax and they're giving in to the spirit of the age and they need to be challenged. Second thing is it could be that the church has explained it poorly. There's been poor communication. But the third thing is that the church needs to reconsider the teaching. And the sort of words they use are clarification, reformulation, or with the help of theology, revision. Now, revision is a strong word. And going back in history, that you can point to all kinds of issues where that has happened. I mean, a very non-controversial one that I have instanced before was the teaching which was constant in the church up to about 1947, that the man was head of the woman in marriage, mm-hmm. the headship of the man, mirroring the headship of Christ vis-à-vis the church. And because the culture had changed and because people could see sense in the way the culture had changed, wasn't giving into the spirit of the age, it was finding the Holy Spirit in the signs of the times, the Second Vatican Council talked about a mutuality, a covenant uh, and a reciprocity. And then Pope John Paul II in 1987 in his um, encyclical on the laity repeated the Vatican II teaching and reinterpreted the various scriptural passages which had seemed to show that the man was head of the woman. That's a very recent example of something that's been a sea change. It's been a revision of the teaching. So the church has protocols in place for the eventuality that over a period of time, church teaching has not been properly received by the ordinary person, if you like. And synodality and the process that the Pope is unleashed is an ideal time to take the temperature there. And so in the Irish document uh, coming from the Irish church, which was then boiled down at the European Synod in Prague, they asked for any necessary doctrinal, canonical, liturgical change. So any necessary doctrinal change. And in the document that was a summary, if you like, of the 112 different submissions from all over the world, 112 out of 114 uh, Episcopal commissions submitted to that document, they say there that it is a universal question, not restricted to the West or to Ireland or the place of women in the church and their full and equal place in the church. Now, they go on to say that there's very strong support for women deacons and there's more of a split on the issue of the ordination of women. But no one can deny that it's a live question. And many people who make the distinction between deacons and women are saying, let's try the diaconate first, see if that accords, and then look at the ordination of women, because they know the church, if you like, has been so insistent on the possibility of the non-ordination of women that it's going to be very hard for it to back back. But if it follows its own protocols in this matter, that's the direction it may be going. Yeah, it's a path forward. And it strikes me, listening to you, Mm. that... That would fit in well with 
going back to where we started, the question of Kerry Weber, where she talked about women mm. feeling pained mm-hmm. and feeling they had a vocation. Mm. So that's the sense mm. of the faithful. Mm. It was answered theologically, mm. but the actual question was, if you like, putting it onto another, the footing you're talking about, which is what is the sense of the faithful mm. and how is it being received? Mm-hmm. And if there's enough women who mm. are in that position, that surely must carry mm. weight. Yeah, and I think that would help too. I mean, I think it's very hard for women in that position to speak out because it's a very painful situation to feel at the core of your being, you're called in this direction and you've been told for so long that that's not possible and it's not even possible to discuss it. To suddenly ask women now to be open about what they've gone through is very hard because uh, their experience uh, hasn't been good. But if you go back to the early church where all this starts in terms of synods and councils and changing church teaching, it was the fact that at Antioch in the early church that Jews, they weren't sure that there was a difference between being a Jew and being a Christian in the early church wasn't so clear-cut. But they began to see that others, what they called Gentiles, pagans, who might form different religions, were also given the Spirit. They could see it. The experience was there. And they had to ask the question then, do they have to follow the Jewish laws? Do males, for example, have to get circumcised? And that was the big thing at the Council of Jerusalem. It's in Acts 15 where they discussed this. And the theological arguments were put side by side. You know, this is our tradition that you have to be circumcised. But but it wasn't that that won it. It was the experience of what they had seen in Antioch. And similarly, when they went back to Antioch, it was the fact that the people there received the message that in future circumcision wasn't necessary. They received it with joy and peace. And that, that was the clincher. So I do think that in this present discussion, the more that women can take part women who have felt that vocation uh, I think the healthier it will be and and it will help the church I think to uh, move on and that's why I don't think theology can the way the Pope used I think is a bit unfortunate it was almost like a way to close down conversation I mean I've likened it to the sitcom Father Ted where when things get a bit difficult <laughs> Dougal says to Ted or Ted says to oh that would be an ecumenical <laughs> matter now yeah. and you move off it yeah. it was almost by saying oh it's theology oh you can't go there and that's a kind of use of theology as a mystification mm. but a much better use of theology is to try and tease out whether that analogy of Petra and Marian stands up and I think there are good reasons to say it doesn't and then to look at basically why does the church because behind all the reasons it gives you have to be in the person of Christ in person, have to represent Christ that's another part of the Petra and Marian thing behind it all is this simple statement back in 1976 in the original document, again in 1994, church doesn't feel it has the authority ordained women. And yet the Pontifical Biblical Commission, which had people like Raymond Brown and Cardinal Martini on it, said that in their view as scriptural experts, and they voted 14-2 on this thing, there was nothing in scripture 
to prevent women. They weren't saying that there was a knockdown argument for women priests, but there was nothing against it. The scripture doesn't actually rule on this. And this is a new question, given our understanding in this age of who women are and what they can do. So it's very doubtful then if you can say with confidence that the church doesn't have authority. I mean, basically, Chris O'Donnell used to teach, he's died now, he said it's it's an argument from tradition, but tradition has to be based on scripture. And when the scripture scholars tell us there is no authority. So it's a bit like, again, going back to the thing of, of an ecumenical matter, Hans Christian Andersen, in the story about the emperor's new clothes, the whole point of that was that the emperor loved clothes and these two people came along to make him an outfit that was outstanding, but only those who were clever or who were competent would understand it. They would see how outstanding this was. And, of course, they made no clothes. And the emperor goes out and everybody's afraid to say anything because if they say anything, they'll be considered stupid or incompetent and then a little child says but he's wearing nothing (laughs) and an adult says let's listen to the innocent child and that's to me the great thing that the Pope has done he's given license to voices to come out and say but that doesn't hold together there isn't anything there and okay somebody else can say but there is and, and you can have a discussion about it and over time the truth will emerge But it does seem to me we're at that moment where, and I do hope that we don't as a church dodge the decision at the end of the discussion because you can't go on talking about things ad nauseum. People see through that. They see that as an avoidance. I agree for women who who would like to see equality across the board, Mm -hmm. people being called because of who they are, not their gender, to orders, that the statement that the church couldn't even pronounce on it, even if they could, that they can't, was particularly painful because then you're almost saying that God has ordained that this be so. And for the women mentioned who feel they have a vocation, that's a particular core feeling that, well, am I way off beam that I feel God is calling me? And they're saying, you can blame God for this. So then for them, God is actually creating a superior and an inferior class. Now, of course, there are women who don't agree and women who support the traditional position. But as you say, that's for discussion. That's what synodality should be about. You're not going to please everybody. Yeah, I think so. And I I, I do think that discernment is a subtle kind of thing and communal discernment is very subtle. Michael Paul Gary used to talk about discernment of culture a lot, way before people people used to restrict discernment to individual lives, you know. But he talked about the whole culture. So I'm not saying that these are easy things and the the Pope is very conscious, I'm sure, of being representative of the unity of, of a tradition. But he's shown he's well able to respect diversity as well. And I do think one of his great motives for all of this is missionary. He really believes that we have good news, that the encounter with Jesus Christ and the merciful face of God is huge good news to the world, you know, because this interview that we started off talking about, talked about Ukraine, talked about China, talked about all the big issues, the earth and so on, and the Pope was replying in terms of the good news that the Church had to bring in these particular kind of areas. 
And it seems to me that this is an area where the good news is obscured by holding on to positions which are not reasonably grounded, so that the missionary impulse of the church is hindered by the fact that in this area, people can't see that the church is credible. So again, Particularly as a justice issue, even. Yeah, you know, yeah, if yeah. you're going to talk about justice and equality, mm in workplace and in every other area, it yeah, rings yeah. hollow when in your own institution yeah. women are, are asking for that and can't have it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's true what people will say that no particular woman has injustice the gift of being a priest and just as no man mm-hmm. has it. It's always a gift, you know. Exactly. But it's unjust that a particular category or a particular sex or mm-hmm. gender isn't deemed worthy or open to that gift unless there's some very clear reason that a lot of people are missing. And the Pope, it seems to me, made a very good attempt to to give the reason because he knew once you get into public debate, you have to start giving reasons. You can't just stay stum behind on this kind of mystification of the papacy. And that's the great tonic of this Pope, that he'll put his foot in it, he'll... He's giving you his innermost thoughts on on this and and that allows you then to discuss the thing openly. And rather than being a break on synodality, as a lot of people suggested, and you were hinting your own reaction was one of dismay at the start, it seems to me, unless he were to suddenly say, that's off the table, but there's no sign he's doing that. There's no sign he's doing that. I think it's a great benefit, actually, that he's so open about something which is so delicate and so controverted. But it's part of the general missionary thrust, it seems to me, of the church, that that outreach to the world is hampered when the church takes up positions which are very, very incredible to people. Because the Catholic Church has always said that faith and reason go together. There's a compatibility. It's talked about faith helping reason and in some issues that things can't be revealed to reason alone, that you have the Mm -hmm. Blessed Trinity and so on. But there's always a way of putting them in conversation with one another so that there's no contradiction. And you'd ask yourself at this point in human history whether this is not a contradiction that the church finds itself embroiled in.